Well, good morning. Um, as Kevin said, my name is CJ. I'm on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at JMU. I'm a missionary pastor to the campus. And I get to share with you from God's Word this morning. If you have your Bible, please open it up to Genesis 28. We've been in Genesis, and we're looking at um, Jacob and his family, and they're really screwy. Um, I don't know if you guys picked up on that. Uh, if your name's Jacob, I'm sorry. Uh, it means deceiver. Um, I don't know if that's been covered yet in, the, in this little series we've been going on. Uh, but it's kind of a weird thing to name your kid uh, deceiver. Actually, it literally means uh, he who grasps a heel, but it's a euphemism for someone who deceives. And it's really appropriate for Jacob, not only because he is a deceiver, and you're going to see that in the weeks to come. In the future text, we saw it last week, he deceives his father. But he comes from a family of deceivers. This wasn't an out-of-the-blue moment that occurred last week when we saw him deceive his father. His granddaddy, Abraham, deceived a guy named Abimelech because Abraham, though a man of faith, was also conquered by fear from time to time. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, go into this land, and this guy, Abimelech, was ruling it. And Abraham is totally afraid that they're going to take and kill him and take his wife, Sarah. So he tells his wife, Sarah, if anyone asks who you are, You say you're my sister, and I'll say I'm your brother. You know who else does that? Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac goes into the land. Abimelech is ruling, and he says to his wife, Rebecca, look, you're beautiful. You you are the hotness of the land, and if they see you and know you're my wife, they're going to kill me, and they're going to take you. So if anyone asks, you say You're my sister, and I'll say, I'm your brother. Deceit as to who they actually are is family sin. It's been passed down. The story, look what we did to Abimelech. Passed down, and it's been told. And so this is family sin that Jacob is inheriting, and he's taking on the name of the family sin. Jacob, the deceiver. And so when the time comes for his older brother Esau to receive the father's blessing, what does Rebekah do? She says, well, deceive him. It's not supposed to happen this way. We can't actually trust God that he would protect us from Abimelech. We couldn't actually trust God that God could work things out for you to receive the blessing. The only way for us to do this is out of fear to manipulate the situation and to deceive and to take it onto ourselves. And so Rebekah says to Jacob, You need to go in and pretend you're somebody else. And if your dad asks who you are, you say you're your brother. You say you're Esau, because you're going to get the blessing. And that's exactly what he does. He goes in, he deceives his dad, he gets the blessing, he already got the birthright. The birthright is is the older son's inheritance, it's a double portion. And the blessing is just kind of an acknowledgement of that status. When the father's about to die, he acknowledges the status of the older son and blesses him. It says, you're going to receive the double inheritance, you're going to lead the family, you have responsibility now. And Esau, the older brother who's supposed to receive this blessing, is mad as heck. And he decides he's going to kill his brother Jacob. So if, if I'm not going to get the blessing, if I'm going to get the inheritance, the only way I can get it is kill him, get him out of the way, it'll be mine. And Jacob is on the run. His mom, again, kind of sets up a situation to get Jacob out of the house and to run away to her uncle Laban. Jacob's on the run. He's 77 years old. Now that might sound senior to us, but he's going to live to be 147. So if you do like a, a take into account age inflation, he's about in his mid-40s. 
He's about 47 years old. He's on the run. His brother hates him. He's grown up in a horrible family. The tension between one parent favoring you and the other parent favoring your twin brother. Can you imagine 77 years of mom saying, you're blessed, God told me. God told me when you're in my womb that you are going to be the blessed one and that your older brother, he's going to submit to you. You're going to rule over him. And mom favors you and you become the homeboy who watches Food Network and HGTV because you love staying at home and that's who Jacob was. And dad's treatment of you is pretty bad. He kind of ignores you or is, is passively indifferent to you because he favors the older son. He favors Esau, who's more of a National Geographic Discovery Channel, Bear Grylls kind of guy who likes going out in the wild, who likes hunting, is a man's man. Dad favors your older brother. He doesn't favor you, but mom's telling you one thing. You're the blessed one, but dad's doing something else and trying to give the blessing to your brother. And you're like, who am I? What is going on? I've just deceived my dad. Is this blessing even real? Is it even possible for that word that, God, that dad spoke to me to be real if I got it by way of deceit? Can that be true? And I'm on the run and my brother's trying to kill me and mom says she loves me and dad's not, I'm not sure what dad thinks of me anymore. Who am I? Jacob, as we enter into this text, has reached rock bottom socially with his family. Spiritually, he's never had an encounter with God. He's only heard about God. Physically, he's on the run. He's not a comfy HGTV moment for him right now. He's going to take a rock for a pillow, and that's quite appropriate because he's hit rock bottom. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 28, we pick it up at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. It's about a 550-mile journey. He's just one day in. And when he reached a certain place... He stopped for the night because the sun had set. He hadn't even made it to a town. So taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. I mean, it is grace of God that you can even sleep when you're used to a comfy home and you're emotionally, physically, socially distraught like Jacob. But he falls asleep. And God is going to speak to Jacob for the first time ever in Jacob's life. He's going to hear from God. And Jacob's going to have um, a pretty profound experience with his God. And it's going to happen in the context of a dream. In verses 12 through 15, he's going to uh, have this dream. There's two parts to the dream. First, there's a vision. He's going to see something, and then there's a voice. The voice of God is going to explain what he saw. So let's look at verse 12 and 13. This is what he saw. Here's the vision. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. So a two-part vision. The vision is of a stairway. It's not a ladder. We call it Jacob's ladder, and that's fine. But um, it's actually uh, probably Jacob would have envisioned a ziggurat, which is kind of a temple, a large temple of their day with uh, steps that go up the middle. You might think of like an Aztec or a Mayan pyramid, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. It has those steps that go all the way up. Uh, that's what he pictured. And it's resting on the earth. And it's going all the way up to a point where he can't even see the top of it. It's reaching to the heavens. So he has this picture. Angels are going up and down the stairs. And then the other part of the, the vision is God himself. Now, the NIV, which is what I use, says um, that God was above it. And if you use the NIV, uh, there's probably a little uh, note there next to above it in verse 13. You look down the bottom and it says, or 
it says, there beside him stood the Lord. Uh, and so I looked this up. I'm not a Hebrew scholar or anything. I just kind of go online and get a bunch of different translations and look. Most of them say above it. Um, but the word above it can also mean beside. So uh, 43 times in the Old Testament, it's, it's translated as above, and 47 times it's translated beside. So it's kind of a, a you pick, you choose. And I'm going to choose to say he's beside it um, because I think it fits with what the ladder means or the stairway means. And plus, how can you see God if he's all the way at the top? I mean, it's like a little speck, right? So I think God's beside it. God is beside the stairway. But what does this whole thing mean? What's the stairway mean? Um, a lot of ways to take this. Uh, there's a lot of Jewish commentaries that uh, say certain things about it. There's a lot of Christian commentaries that say certain things about it. Let me just give you the simplest way, I think, to approach not only this text, but all of the Old Testament. Look, simple, simple doesn't mean um, immature. Simple doesn't mean elementary. Uh, simple means user-friendly, perhaps. Uh, for years, I tried to get my mom to get an iPhone. Uh, she thought it was way too complicated. Finally, last year, after five years of begging, uh, she finally got one. She's like, this thing is amazing. I was like, I know. It's, it could, it's, it's easy, right? It's simple to use. Is an iPhone simple? Not at all. Right? <laughs> I couldn't make one. I couldn't program one. Can I use one? Certainly. Um, and so let me give you a user-friendly, a simple way of approaching the Old Testament, and that is Christologically. Um, and that is we look for the Christ. We look for the Christ in the Old Testament. And the reason we do this is because it's how Jesus approached the Old Testament. Um, if you have your Bible, flip to John 5. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the, the teachers, the, um, the leaders of their day, the, the intellectuals, the academics who kind of know their Bible. Um, and they're arguing back and forth with Jesus. And in verse 39, Jesus says to them, he says, you diligently study the Scriptures. Now that's the Hebrew Old Testament. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. What's the Old Testament about? Jesus. Look, look down at verse uh, 46. John 5, 46. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Who did Moses write about? Moses wrote about Jesus. Flip to Luke. Luke 24, a couple pages the other direction. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Jesus has died, he's resurrected, and these two men are walking on the road, and they're trying to figure out what just happened. Jesus encounters them, and in verse 27, it says, In beginning with Moses, which is the Pentateuch, and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Luke 24, verse 44. He's with the disciples, and he says to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Who is the Old Testament about? It is about Jesus. This isn't a, a little uh, trickery just to kind of like read and try to find Jesus in the Old Testament. This was his hermeneutic principle of the Old Testament, that it's about him. And so we look at Jacob's stairway in this dream, and we need to try and understand it, we need to understand it in light of the person of Jesus Christ. That is how he understood it. In fact, he says it clear as day in the gospel text we just heard, John 1.51. He then added, I tell you the truth, he's speaking to Nathaniel, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which was Jesus' name for himself. 
What is the stairway? Who is the stairway? The stairway is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is fully grounded on earth, resting on earth. He is fully man and ascending all the way to the heavens, fully present there as well, fully God, the one who has spanned the distance between heaven and earth, the gap. He's the one true mediator who can represent mankind and represent God in a necessary transaction. So a mediator, this one true mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. A mediator um, in uh, the ancient Near East, relationships were everything in the ancient Near East. If you were out of sorts with somebody, your whole village was out of sorts. If you're out of sorts with somebody in your family, your whole family was out of sorts. Mediation was necessary. The person who did the mediating wasn't the wisest person. It wasn't the smartest person. It wasn't the coolest kid. It, it was the person who did the mediation was the person who had the closest relationship with both parties. That way both parties would trust the mediator. And the mediator would work out a resolution between the two disagreeing parties. And that is who Jesus Christ is. He is fully man. One who can be fully trusted by us because he's entered into our world. He's entered into flesh. He understands our difficulties, our trials. He understands the struggle with temptation. And yet at the same time, he is fully God. Trusted by God to be the one who bridges the gap between us and God. And so what Jacob sees as he sleeps in this dream is the Messiah. He sees the Christ, the one who bridges the gap, the mediator between heaven and earth, and God standing next to him, beside him, is proof that God has come down, that God has come down to stand among us and to be with men. Now, that's a lot, Uh, and we see that clearly in hindsight. We know that. Jacob, however, that's a tough thing to get, right? Just seeing a stairway of angels going up and down on it. So a voice comes. It's not just a vision. We get a voice as well. The voice of God speaks. And listen to this, these words. They're amazing. They are all grace. They are all blessing. There is a, not a single mention of sin. There's not a single mention of an, an if statement. There's not a condition put into this. It's beautiful. So back in Genesis 28... Verse, starting in verse 13, halfway through. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I'll watch over you wherever you go. I will not bring you back. To, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So he starts off, says, look, Jacob, let me tell you what's going on here. Your granddaddy, Abraham, I'm his God. You heard him talk about me, I'm his God. Your daddy, Isaac, I'm his God. And now I'm about to be your God. He's going three things. He says, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You'll multiply. And all peoples on the earth will be a blessing. It will be blessed through you. The land, filling the land, and being a blessing. This is, this is God's original intent for mankind. While, it, yes, it is a renewal of the covenant and an affirmation of Jacob that the covenant 
is in him and he is part of the covenant. He's restoring Jacob to his humanity. Humanity from the very beginning was meant to fill the earth and to subdue it, to rule over the land, to have dominion in a way that would be a blessing to others. And so what God is saying to Jacob is the blessing that your dad gave you, the questions you're wondering about the deceit and the sin, and whether or not you should have done that, was this whole thing for real? God is coming into Jacob's life and saying, I've overcome your sin. I've overcome your brokenness. The blessing is yours. That that wasn't a lie that your dad spoke. And I'm affirming that for you. I'm going to restore you through this covenant relationship to your original intent to be human again. And not only that, which is amazing news, not only that, it's like, I'm going to go with you. Verse 15, I'm going to go wherever you go. I will keep you, I will protect you, I will guard you. Now, does any of this sound familiar? Someone who's raised in a broken family, caught up in sin and patterns of deceit, on the run because of the consequences of their sin, running from death itself, is met by God who says, don't get up, I'll come down, I'll meet you where you are, and in that place, I will offer you grace and forgiveness. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news. And it isn't just for Jacob, it's for us. It's for all people to restore us to God's original intent for us as humans. To fill the land, to subdue it, to be subject to God under his lordship, and then to be a blessing wherever we go. And God has promised, I'm going to go with you. To the ends of the earth, I will be with you. Wherever you go, I'll give give you my spirit. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So how do you respond to that? Well, here's how Jacob responds. Verse 16. Now, it doesn't say this. I'm picturing this in my mind. I think Jacob, like, bolted awake. I don't think it was kind of a groggy awakening. I think he is, like, hyped up, heart beating real fast. You ever woken up like that from a dream, almost like sweating? You're like, oh, my gosh, what the heck just happened? And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, so this is in his mind, he says, oh, my gosh, surely the Lord is in this place. I wasn't... I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and then he says out loud, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Again, that temple and that image, it was in his mind, this is, this is how you get to God. This is the place of heaven. He is afraid at once. Now, this isn't that uh, uh, fearful afraid, like someone's going to get me kind of afraid. This is holy fear. It's... Um, and it's clear from what he says. How awesome is explanation point? How awesome is this? This is amazing. What the heck? God, I just had a God encounter. I just had a holy moment with God. And there's this gravity to the situation, but there's also this gladness to the situation. You know, gravity is what um, anything that's of, of any anything that has mass has gravity to it. Um, you have a gravitational force field. You have mass. Um, and, and the planet has, uh, has mass. And anything that has immensity to it has 
pulls things into it. And the greatness of God is so huge that, it, that He pulls us in and He grounds us. This is this idea of fear. that This is uh, a sober grounding reality to the greatness of who God actually is. And He pulls me in. You guys have had moments like this. I'm not saying they happen every day or even every year, but I, I bet many of you have had those grounding moments where gravity pulls you in. But it's not a crushing fear or a crushing gravity that's oppressive. It's a gladdening gravity. It actually frees you because now I can walk and I'm not just drifting around purposeless in life. I can move and I have purpose to my being and there's a gladness and there's a joy to it. And this is exactly what Jacob experienced. His first response is a response of emotional, ecstatic gladness and gravity all at once. It captures him. And, and I don't know if this is what happened. It's not in the text. I'm imagining it a bit here. But I think Jacob kind of just pondered that for a while. I think he sat in that moment. He's like, how amazing is this place? How awesome is this place? We're not told that he went back to sleep. I couldn't imagine going back to sleep after that. Right? But I think he stays up. And he just starts thinking. And he's pondering. And he's taking things into his heart. And then in verse 18, early in the morning... Jacob takes that stone that he had placed under his head as the pillow and he sets it up as a pillar and he pours oil. He, he anoints it. He pours oil on top of it and he called that place Bethel. Though the city used to be called Luz. And he does something that all the cool kids in the Old Testament do. He sets up a pillar. Uh, pillars were a real common thing. David sets up pillars. Joshua sets up pillars. Moses sets up pillars. Samuel sets up pillars. And they're markers. They're markers to say... Um, God met me in this place. There was a moment, something happened here, and it was so significant in my life that I'm setting up a pillar to mark the place and to mark the occasion. And it gives this pillar, this stone standing up, gives testimony to God. In Samuel, in 1 Samuel, Samuel sets up a pillar and he calls it Ebenezer. Eben is, Ebenezer is a Hebrew word. Eben means stone. Ezer means helper. A stone of help. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. Right? We raise Ebenezers in our lives to mark the moments of gravity and gladness where God has met us. They're critical for us. This is the first time Jacob's ever encountered God. And he puts up this little pillar. Have you set up pillars in your life to say, this is my testimony. Not just my conversion moment, but these are the times where God has proven Himself faithful to me over and over again. And so I mark my life with these pillars. How cool would it be to have a little pillar garden in your backyard? Your kids can set up pillars, and you set up pillars. And we tell stories about what each one means. Just a few weeks ago, I was at home group, and my friend Griff came with me. Come say hi to Griff after service. He's great. And we were sitting down, and we had uh, dinner with Alan and Susanna. And I've heard Susanna's testimony numerous times uh, in home group, and I wanted Griff to hear it. So I was like, Susanna, would you tell Griff your, your story? Because it's amazing. It's testimony. It's a pillar raised. And it brings courage to our hearts. It reminds us that God is good and that God is faithful, and that while I might be in a dark moment right now, I remember the pillars that have marked my life. And we need to hear it from other people so that we can take courage and be encouraged. We need to remind ourselves and visit our own pillars time and again because Jacob's about to walk away from this pillar and for 20 years he's going to be unfaithful 
to God. He's going to be self-focused and self-driven. He's going to continue to deceive until finally he meets his match and he's outfoxed by his uncle Laban, who's a better deceiver than him. And two wives, 11 boys, one girl, and an uh, untrustworthy father-in-law later, 20 years, God is going to show up to Jacob again. And you know what God is going to say? Jacob, do you remember the pillar you set up? Hopefully we'll get to that text in a few weeks. Do you remember the pillar? Do you remember the testimony you gave in that moment? Have you set up pillars? Are these the stories you tell one another in home group and in your families and in your gatherings? Do you tell the stories of God's faithfulness? You have to. Not just a conversion story, but I mean the providential care God has brought into your life. Have you set up pillars? Jacob sets up the pillar... And then lastly, he makes a profession, a profession of faith. I think this is a profession of faith. You can disagree with me. Commentators are are split on this. Listen to it. He makes an if-then statement. Some people think he's being a trickster still. Some people think that he's bargaining with God by this if-then statement. Um, And they could be right. Listen, you decide. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I'll return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Could be. Certainly could be. The next 20 years of his life, he's going to continue to be a deceiver. He's going to be self-reliant and faithless. Certainly makes sense that perhaps this is not a conversion moment. Um... If you read the if-then that way, really the if is a when. When God does these things, then I'll do this. But there's another way to read the if-then statement. And in that way, the if is not a when. The if is a since. Since God will do these things for me, he will be my God. Now, Jacob has only spoken the name of God one other time in his life. And it's when he was deceiving his father. And he said, he didn't call God his God. He said, the Lord your God. But here, he's made a shift. He says, the Lord, my God. I think this is, I don't know how you can have a dream. Be as ecstatic as Jacob is. Set up a marker as testimony to God's faithfulness to you. And then just start bargaining with him. He's, this, this is conversion. This is a true profession of faith. Now, the legitimate question is, can you come to God and have a legitimate profession of faith and then live 20 years of your life faithless? It's a good question, isn't it? Because that's what he does. I don't know. I kind of resonate with Jacob that way. I feel like my whole life is a battle to be faithful. Two days, two weeks, two months, two years, two decades. What's the difference? Distance is of no consequence to God. He spans the gap. Can a person do that? Sure. I think we all struggle with that. All of us have made professions of faith and then gone back to our ways. All of us who who claim Christ as Lord and Savior struggle immensely. We set up pillars. We have holy moments. We give testimony and then we go run our own course. Or a prodigal journey every hour. (laughs) But God remains faithful. It's not about your faithfulness. It's about Christ's faithfulness to you. It's about not your ability to bridge the gap, 
but God's having come down and already bridged the gap for you because you can't bridge the gap. So, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, would you come back to Him? Would you look to Him, the one true mediator, and repent again? Come back to Him. If you've been two days, 20 years, doesn't matter. Come back to Jesus. And maybe some of you, you've never heard from God like this. Not necessarily in a dream, but you've never heard God speak to you personally. Hebrews 1 says that in, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers at sundry times and in diverse manners, which is an old King James way of saying in a lot of different ways, like dreams, in a lot of different times. But today, He has spoken to us through His Son. If you have never heard from God, would you look to Jesus Christ? Would you read of Him in His Word? He is the living Word of God. And would you listen and allow Him to speak to you of His love and His grace? You know, God came down to Jacob, a horrible, sinful man, and He did not come to Jacob to condemn him. He came to free him and to restore him. Jesus Christ did not come to condemn but to be condemned for you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, would you entrust your life to Him? Admit your sin. He didn't come to guilt and shame you. He came to restore you to a true humanity who He always intended you to be so that you could be a blessing to this world, His creation. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you in this time of worship, in a time of communion, to pray and to receive Him into your heart. If you do know Jesus, come in celebration of all that God has done in your life, of all the pillars, and of this moment itself, of God's call back to himself. He has come to meet you. Let me pray.